Alors, je vais parler aujourd'hui... Well, today, I'd like to say something about what we said last time. There were two points I wanted to talk about. At the end of uh, the previous lesson, I said there's this fact, which is that some countries are catching up on life expectancy. When we say that growth is only based on life expectancy, then people don't realize that there's a negative relation between the initial level of life expectancy and the increase in life expectancy. And therefore, since this link is not taken into account, then the negative coefficient or effect that you can see is due to the catch-up effect, because you're going to start with a higher level of life expectancy, which is good for growth, intuitively. See what I mean? Forget about the equation. This is what was uh, missing sometimes when the formulae are formulas that only look at life expectancy increase, but not at the initial level of life expectancy in the field of health. Now, what I'd like to talk about today is inequalities and growth. So I'll be talking about a number of things, and I've prepared quite a lot. I think I've prepared more than is necessary, but you'll have food for thoughts. To start with, I'd like to tell you that there will be three parts to my presentation. First, we'll talk about inequalities and how they have changed, how we measure them and how they have developed. Secondly, I'll talk about a number of explanations. We'll try and explain a number of things, not everything, but at least I'll give you hints and uh, more information for you to better understand the development of inequalities. And then we'll take a more normative view. That is, if what you want is both growth and a better control on inequalities, what's the best approach? Of course, I have a number of views. I'll be uh, putting forward a number of ideas that you might agree with or disagree with. But anyway, this is the path that we're going to tread together. First, what about measuring inequalities? Well, there are different ways, you see, to measure inequalities. One of those is that you could say it's the difference between average income and median income. Median income, well, let me do this for you. This is population in a given segment. Then median income is the income that people have here, and then people have plotted there, rated uh, on an increasing basis, and the median is there to have as many people on the left as there are on the right-hand side. That's median income, right? Whereas average income is, well, let's say that Y equals GDP divided by population, right? This is then average income or average wages. So that means that average is different from median. If in your society you have many people who are poor and not many who are rich, then the median level might be really low. And maybe the uh, rich are very rich, but then the average income is quite high. So to measure inequality, you have to look at the difference between average income and median income. If the difference is huge, then this means that uh, there's a problem. Are you still with me? Raise your hands, raise your hands if you don't understand, right? That's the only thing you can do to express yourself, to say, no, 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 slow down. So that's the difference between average income and median income. 
There are some countries where inequalities are high, like Brazil, for instance. Well, I don't know about Brazil nowadays, but in the past, people tended to say that uh, there were many inequalities and the GDP per capita was reasonable. They had reached average income, but the median income was really low. There were too many people who were poor, and therefore the difference between average income and median income was huge. That's the first thing we can do to measure this. The second measurement is to consider a ratio. For instance, the 10% and the rest 90%. So income will be divided in two different segments, as you can see here. That's 10% of the poorest, and then that's 90%, right? And 10%, the upper and lower 10%. Look at their average income compared to the lowest segment. And that's what we can do to measure inequalities. The top 10% richest compared to uh, the 10% poorest and their income level. That's what we can do to measure inequalities. Or let's say 80% or 20% that earn quite a lot compared to 20% who are in the lowest category. That's what we can do to measure inequalities. But also there's another thing. Gini, the Gini index. You might have heard the expression before. The Gini index is a bit more complicated. Right. This is income for people on in the upper decile versus the lowest decile. In the US, it has gone up. Not in France. That's quite interesting. Those are a bit old. The figures are a bit old. But as you can see, it went down between 1970 and 1980 and was then stable, whereas in the US it's increased more, and in the United Kingdom as well, whereas in Sweden it's really flat, really stable. That's what we can do to measure inequalities and see how inequalities evolve as a function of time. So the Gini index, well, this is a bit special. At each level, you look at total income that X percent of the poorest get, right? So this means what's the fraction of wages in the hands of this X percent, for instance, 10 percent, let's say the 10 percent poorest people, if they get, that's a 45 degree slope, if the 10 percent of the poorest get 10 percent, then you see what I mean, if you have each time the quantity that corresponds to the fraction of population it means there's total equality total equality which would mean which would mean that for each category well if you take for instance 10% they get 10% so they're not poorer than anybody else which means that uh, with this you obtain this type of curve look at this we're going to plot them right these households aggregated, the poorest here, 20% poorest, they get less than 20% of total wages. And the more you have a curve, the more unequal it is. Whereas if the curve was matching the pure, perfect straight line, everybody would get the same. So the number of people correspond to the percentage they have. Whereas if you have unequal distribution, it means that you have a lot of poor people there who get really not much, and then the rest get more wages. Inequalities are measured on this, that is, this surface between the straight line and the curve. This is the deviation from perfect 
equality, to cut a long story short. Sometimes I'll use the expression Gini, and this is what it means, Gini index, it's deviation from perfect equality. That's the most difficult part of our lesson today. Right, and here, for instance, if we had a, a curve there, it means 20% of the poorest get almost nothing at all. They have no wages almost. So my point is that 20% of the poorest, so what's the percentage of total wages or income for them? If they have a very low percentage, it means that there are many inequalities. If the 20% of the poorest get 20% of total income, it means perfect uh, equality. Are you still with me? This is what we call the Gini indicator to measure global or overall inequalities. So this is the surface between the curve, the Lorentz curve, and uh, perfect equality. If Gini index equals 1, that's maximum inequality. And if Gini equals 0, then it's perfect equality. It's easy to understand. If you have zero surface or deviation there, it means that both are uh, on the same line. Therefore, Gini equals 0. And the worst is when you have a Lorentz curve that's almost like this. And then, when you reach almost 100, it goes up very quickly. That's the worst one in terms of inequalities. Some people are coughing, some people are coughing. I know what this means. When people start coughing, that means you're suffering. I can feel that you're suffering. I've pills for the throat if anybody uh, feels like they're going to be coughing. Anyway, I know you've suffered a lot, so now we're going to harvest the fruit of all this. What about uh, Kuznets's uh, hypothesis? Oh, thank you, Françoise, for correcting all of these typos. Exceptionally, today we have no uh, spelling mistakes or typos. Françoise has uh, proofread all of my slides, so that's uh, Kuznets's assumption, working assumption. He said, well, what I'd like to understand is how inequalities change and evolve with development. He said, OK, we don't know what's happened in the past, but what we know is inequality today and inequalities today. He was living in the 50s, and you know what he did? He said, OK, let's take a given country, knowing that each country has a given level of GDP per capita. OK, so there's GDP per capita. In each country, we have GDP per capita, which equals more or less development states and um, or stage, rather. And then in each country, we have a Gini index. We could look at distribution of wages. And Kuznets used fiscal and tax data. He's the first one to understand that with tax data, we could understand distribution of income. Well, Piketty and Size did a lot more. Now uh, we use computers, and therefore they continued on the same tracks, developing on what uh, Kuznets had uh, done. And he was using tax data to measure uh, inequalities. So you can do this for any country. You can look at GDP per capita and also the Gini index. So for each country, you're going to have a dot. And then try and understand and look at the curve that's closest to all of these points. And this is what the curve looks like. It's like an upside down U-shaped curve. Upside down U-shaped curve, really close to all the points 
all the dots there. And that really is like an upside-down U-shaped curve. And then Kuznets thought, what about telling a story about this? Well, that was, of course, for uh, the 1950s. But then he said that the countries that are not developed today are like our countries and what they were like in the past. So he took this snapshot view and tried to explain what had happened before. He said, this is where we were before, which is both true and wrong. So he tried to tell this story. He, he said, okay, this is how we were before and that's how we've developed. And that's his story. In his story, he says, okay, when countries develop to start with, there are more inequalities, but then inequalities tend to go down. And that's true. If you look at what's happened in the United States or in most developed countries with industrial uh, revolution, uh, inequalities have increased. And then from 1920 to 1970, inequalities tended to go down. And he did that in 1955, and he had the feeling that inequalities were increasing when uh, the countries were initially developing and then inequalities would tend to go down. And the story he found is that he said this is due to a transition between rural and industrial economies. Now, the story is simple. Let's say we're all in the fields uh, growing vegetable. This is just enough to survive. It's farming. That's just enough in terms of livelihood. And then all of a sudden there's industrialization. And some of us can therefore find an industrial job or can earn money in towns and cities, which is what they do. And therefore, inequalities increase because some are lucky enough to go and work uh, downtown, but not everybody. Now, let's imagine that we have a reserve of labor in the field. Some can work in towns and they're going to earn more. And as industrialization develops, then more people will work in cities. But then that means more congestion in cities. And the more people leave the countryside, the more the marginal income of people who work in the countryside increase. Therefore, the fewer people in the countryside, now the more uh, the contribution to individuals to general income is high. Therefore, if there's total equality between all of us, because we're all farmers in the countryside, some can go to towns, and therefore this increases inequalities. But then as more and more people go and find a job in towns, then inequalities change, the trends change. That's due to decreasing returns in cities. And therefore, uh, people leave the countryside more and more which means that salaries tend to increase in the countryside. This was uh, Kuznets' uh, idea. That is a transition from a rural economy to an urban economy. This is what he did to try and rationalize things. And then people's views was uh, were that if you were to ask people what's the effect of growth on inequalities, well, people would say it's a Kuznets curve. Look at his curve, which means it's not really a big deal if inequalities increase to start with because they're going to go down after a while. For instance, South Korea in the 60s, inequalities increased quite a lot, but then it, uh, the trend uh, turned around. So that was a virtuous view on capitalism, that is, countries develop, more inequalities, of course, to start with, and also there are fixed costs. And then after a while, inequalities tend to shrink. Well, of course, that's uh, Kuznets' uh, theory. Others will say there's also what happened to trade unions, that is, uh, workers' uh, unions and movements were better organized, and to have uh, a bigger share of the cake. Others were saying that, okay, there's also the development of financial markets. Anybody can uh, buy shares and stocks. 
and uh, therefore we can share more. So you see, we have different theories on Kuznets's uh, curve, but the religion, the Bible, was uh, Kuznets's uh, curve. Unfortunately, from the 70s onwards, this didn't work any longer. Now that's for the uh, Gini Index and its evolution in the UK or oh, England and Wales, rather. England and Wales, what a nice expression. So Genie would go up quite a lot in England and Wales between 1820 and 1880, and then down, down between 1880 and 1920. And then, then afterwards, it's more or less a flat curve. And then recently, it went up. So between 1820 and 1920, more or less, this is what we have. And this really is time-based. This is, again, a an upside-down U-shaped curve. This is Gini curve, the Gini curve. Well, unfortunately, it, this works, but not for a long period of time. Look at the Gini index in the US from 1975 onward. You know, I don't know if Kuznets was still alive. Maybe he's not seen that. Oh, sorry, I don't know when he died. I've forgotten that. I should know that. Shame on me. Now then, the Gini index, or also the ratio of the top 10 wealthier versus the, the lowest 10 and uh, the last 10% in terms of uh, wages, well, this ratio increased at the end of the 70s and quite a lot during the 80s and the year 2000. So it means that Kuznets' theory is no longer valid because in this time it didn't increase. It just went up again. Which means that all of a sudden people thought, okay, no, because it doesn't work any longer. But it worked differently. And also what we can see is education. Look at the hourly rates in the US between 1980 and the year 2010. Look at the unskilled. Those who've not finished secondary education, or just about. Now, that's for those who've gone to university. That's for the undergraduates, MA and PhD. That's very discriminating. Blue is for males, red is for females. Unskilled men, look at that. Their hourly rates have gone down since the 80s, whereas those who were highly skilled have had a sharp increase in wages. So inequalities f between those who are unskilled and those who are more educated. Wage inequalities. That was the second part. Now, this is in the UK. This is the equivalent of what we had here for the United States. But uh, usually the UK trends follow the trends we have in the US. This is really what looks like the United States, but in Europe. Between 1980 to 2010, there was a sharp increase. And then the trend has plateaued a little. But look at the 80s and the 90s. There was a sharp increase in inequalities. And then here we were looking at the Gini index. This is the 90 to 10 ratio. Before that, we looked at this ratio again and Gini index. And this is the fraction of the top 1%, which means the fraction of income. It's not the top 10, but top 1%. Look at the 1% in your population that have the highest wages. Now, that's how to measure inequality as well. And that's 
for Piketty, Saez, Atkinson, good uh, friends of mine, colleagues, and we have a U type of curve. Top 1% here, these are for the squares, and that's the top 0.1%, the uppest, the uppest part of the distribution. And again, it increased a lot in the 80s, the top 0.1% or top 1% after decreasing slightly before. So here again, we have the same trend, the same trend. Now, now that we've looked at all that, what about Kuznets's uh, hypothesis? Well, we can save him. We can save him. You have the impression that people are dead, but they're never dead. You can save him. We can save him. And that's the same in the UK, top 1%, top 0.1%, down to the 70s. And then in the 80s, it started going up again. This is what we get here. And now I've shown you US trends and UK trends. Similar type of trends, as you can see. That's still for Piketty, Saez and Atkinson. And also, there's something interesting here if we look at wages. Wages. Look at this. There's more uh, polarization. Look at the lowest tier, that's blue. The upper tier, that's green. And the median tier. And, as you will see, if we look at distribution of wages, it's the medium third that has a lot, that has grown a lot. Look at this. That is, that's for the upper and median, or lower tiers have decreased, but the median tier has increased a lot. We will see this. We'll talk about this later on when we talk about the revolution of NTICs. It's mainly the supervisors who've disappeared, the middle managers, the supervisors, you know, the ones who were unskilled. That was easy. There was more delegation or more concentration at the highest level. But when you have cameras, you no longer need uh, supervisors or fewer supervisors. You can control everything from the top of the company. This is something you can easily see when you look at occupations in firms, but also when you look at distribution of wages. It's always very important to do this. There's a lot of work to be done. I have colleagues, Nicolas Bloom at Stanford and uh, John Mondrian at the London School of Economics. They're working on this. That is the links between distribution of wages or income and evolution of companies, how companies uh, have developed. They are leaner now. They are leaner now. We had middle levels before, but now, no, we have leaner organizations. So the people in the middle have been squeezed. Uh, if you uh, read uh, uh, Robert Linhart, you will see that uh, there are fewer supervisors. If you look at production lines like the 2CV Citroen, you will see how these uh, production lines work quite differently. That's interesting. And there's another index that's also very important. There are different ways to measure inequalities. There's the top 1%. Uh, so that's top 1%, top 0.1%. That's one way to measure things. And there's more general uh, measurements like Gini index, 90-10 ratio, etc. And there's a third one, which is social mobility. This is also something that's very important. Social mobility is a more dynamic way of measuring inequalities. What's important is not just to know who earns more and who earns less at a given moment in time, but let's say we have countries A and B, country A and country B, right? So pay, uh, country one and country two. In country number one, there's unequal distribution, right? 
And yet, there's a lot of social mobility, which means that I don't earn much, but maybe my child's going to earn more. Or if I don't earn much at a given moment in my working life, I can perhaps earn later on. So a lot of mobility. But in country number two, there's no mobility, which means that once and for all, your wages will be set and it's going to be the same for your children. Now, look at the consequences of this in countries one and two. I'm not justifying inequalities, but I'm saying that inequality is quite unbearable when there's no social mobility. It doesn't mean that it's bearable at all, uh, other, at all the other levels, but it very much depends on your social mobility. We can measure social uh, mobility in different ways. There was Goldorp, for instance, or others who've worked on this. It's a very interesting topic. I think one year I'm going to do this. I'll be talking about social mobility. One of my colleagues, uh, when I was in uh, Oxford, uh, John Goldorp, well, you know, Goldorp, he looked at the occupation of parents and occupation of children. He wanted to see if there was a lot of uh, gaps, if there were many differences. So what he did is that he made comparisons. Well, of course, occupations change with time. Some jobs tend to disappear. But he would measure this on the basis of people's occupations. But what you can do is also look at wages to measure this. This time, what you're going to do is look at parents' income and children's income. You can do this in a number of countries. And mobility is measured on the fact that when there's less mobility, it means that children's income is much more based on parents' income. But if children's income is not very much correlated to their parents, it means that there's a lot of mobility. First, there's the Great Gatsby Curve. The Great Gatsby Curve, that's its name. Well, what the curve says is that if you are in a country where there's less mobility, then you have more income inequalities, which means that there's a link between the measurement of inequality in a general way, like the Gini index or 90-10 approach, and, and, and social mobility. When Gini is higher, it means lower social mobility. Are you still with me? This is interesting. There's, in general, a correlation between social mobility, which is a dynamic measuring, and the global measuring of inequalities, something that's more general. So we want social mobility, which means that when there's a global measure of inequalities, it means that there's not enough social mobility. So these are very important indicators, Gini or social mobility. Those are the ones I really like. As you will see in a minute, top 1% is yet another approach. There are debates in France on that between uh, myself and Piketty or myself and others when I say we have to focus on the top 1%. But we shouldn't be obsessed with top 1%. If social mobility doesn't decrease and Gini doesn't go up, that's okay for the time being. And then the top 1%, there are different sources, some that are good, some that are not. Another approach would be to say, top 1%, no, we don't want this at all. But I'll say, let's be careful about this. We'll come to this little by little, but I'm sowing the seeds little by little. 
for these seeds to grow. I'm trying to whet your appetite. I want to shock you as well. I want you to be shocked by what I'm going to say. So that's the Great Gatsby curve. This was done in the United States. I'll tell you what they did. Well, it's the same uh, person, Mr. Sayers, but he thought, you know, with other people as well. How can I, how can I erase what I've written on the blackboard? What should I use? My jumper? No, I don't know. I don't know. How should I do this? Help, please. Anybody can help me? How can we erase this? Dear Françoise, Françoise, come on. Françoise, she saved me. She saved me several times. No Skype, no email when I got up. But Françoise was always there. Françoise, you're my savior. I need you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Françoise. Thank you, Françoise. Thank you. Then, the authors. Who are the authors? At Saez, someone called Chetty, and co-authors. Berkeley, that's for Harvard, going to Stanford, etc. Oh, you're an angel, such an angel. Thank you. Yes, an angel. Now, how do we measure social mobility? You know what they did, and that's incredible, is that that's for the United States. They used uh, a microscope, more than a magnifying glass, to study municipalities. For each municipality, they looked at parents' income. They interviewed them between 1996 and the year 2000. And then when the child was 15, okay? Parents' income when the children are 15. And then years 1999 and 20, when the child is 30, and they look at the uh, children's income. They make a correlation between parents' and children's uh, income. And this is what they did in different municipalities in the US. Well, look at the results. Social mobility is something that means the likelihood of these children having an income in the upper quintile when the parents, for instance, come from the lowest uh, quintile. This is one way of measuring this. And they've realized that, uh, well, there's no surprise about this. Mobility is lower here when we have more African-Americans. There's no surprise about this. Mississippi, uh, Alabama, that's not really good for uh, social mobility. That's interesting. We know who the suspects are. You have probably have imagined that before, but that's interesting. It's always interesting to look at this. And then CZ stands for commuting zones, that is municipalities. And also there's more mobility when there's more growth. That's an interesting topic. Another uh, seed that I'm sowing right now, a seed that means there's hope. What we want is growth. What we want is social integration. And therefore, with that, I'm optimistic. I'll say in the regions that are growing faster in the US, this is where we have more social mobility, like California, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut. Well, look at this. There's more growth than in Alabama, and therefore there's more social mobility. That's interesting. It means that there's still hope. If your objective is to consider inclusive growth, that is both growth but also both uh, inclusion, there's hope 
There's hope. I'm not saying I'm in favor of the American model. I've just used American data, but my model is not at all like the American model. There was an article in the Le Monde newspaper that was saying I was fully supporting America, which is not true. But anyway, nowadays we're trying to imitate the Americans. We have similar studies. And then the very famous uh, The Great Gatsby, it's the same curve, but rather than having a country comparison, it's a comparison between American municipalities. Where we have the highest level of social mobility, this is where, in fact, we have we have, uh, well, well, let me rephrase, measuring inequalities is really low there, and that's interesting. So, 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 so all of this is very interesting. And here again, there's a link, this link, this link here. When we have international comparisons, it's still valid at a lower level between American municipalities. It would be the same in France. I've always said we have similar links at country level, but also at a micro level. If we have the same type of relation, the same type of link, that means something. The other thing, which is quite interesting, is this. This is a link between the top 1% income and social mobility. There's a trend which is growing a little. In the US, when the top 1% have the highest level of income, these are the places, these are the places where social mobility is at the highest level. You could have thought it's the country. That's when I start uh, discussing with Piketty and others. I say, look at this. You know, this is not something produced by your enemy. It's produced by your best friend, Emmanuel Saez. Look at the top 1% in the US where they have the highest income. This is where we have social mobility. Massachusetts, California, Connecticut, there's quite a lot of social mobility. Look at the top 1%. They have more and there's more innovation. Whereas if you look at uh, other states, Alabama, Mississippi, etc., there's low social mobility, but then there's less uh, income for the top 1% because there's less innovation. So that means that maybe innovation has a role to play. We'll come to this later on. That segregation of poverty, here again, the more social mobility you have, the less uh, uh, poorer people will be excluded. There's a strong link between social mobility and the poverty trap. Uh, the less you have poverty trap, the more social mobility you have, which is easy to understand. That's the end of my first part, first part of my presentation. Now, let me try and find the second one. Everything's going wrong today. Let me see. Now, why? The question is why. Okay, let's try and recap. Oh, before I do that, slideshow, etc. Click. Sorry, beg your pardon. From start, don't you like this? Oh, all right. My mistake. Well, yeah, we shouldn't have part three, but part two. Sorry, sorry about this. And I've not drunk anything. You know, I don't drink. I don't drink. But sometimes, yeah, these things do happen. Yeah, you're right. This is part two, not part three. Anyway, 
We'll correct this. I can do this now. Do you want me to try and do this? Let me try, let me try. Let me try. I can. No, 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 no. I won't. Explanations then. What have we seen so far? First, there are different ways of measuring inequalities. There are. There's global inequality, Gini index, 90-10 ratio, median or average income versus median, and top 1%, top 0.1% for extreme, extreme inequalities. And then we've seen uh, the links that exist between these uh, uh, types of measures. But then the Kuznet curve, and it seems that recently it's uh, changed quite a lot. So this is where we stand now. Now, our objective is to understand what has happened since the 80s, why Kuznets has not worked uh, from the 80s onward. First, inequalities at large. Inequalities at large, the increase in Gini index and uh, educated versus non-educated people and their salaries, etc. Now, here's another chart. This is for the U.S. These are the trends in the U.S. This is the average income of people who've had a university degree versus those who have a secondary education diploma to measure inequalities. And it goes up and down and up and down. But if we were to draw a line, it would be rather flat. And then from the beginning of the 70s, it go goes down and then up again in the 80s. Strong decrease, strong decrease uh, uh, up to the end of the 70s. And then the ratio increases very quickly. The other curve, well, that's the number of workers with higher education diplomas versus those who don't have any diplomas because more and more people have uh, been to university and therefore there's a growing number of Americans with a university degree, right? And it's going fast. Then what we want to understand is this, why there's a drop and then an increase. This is what I'll describe now. This is what we want to understand. Before that, we thought, okay, Kuznets, okay, maybe there's a slight decrease and then constant and then drop again and then up again. And by the way, what's curious, this is an enigma. Normally, normally, when you have more people who are skilled, it means that people who are skilled is less of a scarcity. And therefore, the relative income of these people should go down. But it's the contrary that's happened. This is curious. This is an enigma. How come? If we look at the number of uh, people who are qualified, well, how come that the skilled labor force's income is not increasing? It's based on supply and demand. If you have more people with a university degree, their relative income should go down compared to other uh, uh, other workers because they're less of a scarcity. Anyway, here again, what we're looking at here is we're looking at things in a different way. That's college versus high school. Here again, a drop and then an increase again between 1963 and the year 2008. Our objective is to understand why there's a drop in the 70s and then an increase starting in the 80s. Well, there are different explanations. I, w I don't want to be too long. I don't want to be too long because there are all types of explanations, some that are really good and others that are not. Anyway, the first explanation is international trade. That is. Okay, what's happened in the 80s? That's the question. Well, 
in the 80s, globalization started. Therefore, you know, there were customs, tariffs between the countries that were eliminated. Therefore, that means that countries could import more from emerging and developing countries. At the time, people were uh, importing a lot from Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then China. So that's due to globalization. globalization. It was easy or easier for people to import goods and products from these countries. Now, if we look at international trade, there's a theory. Well, I'll give you the names. I'll give you the names and the idea. I have to use this to erase the blackboard. The theory is that of Ekcher Olin. Anyway, two economists. Olin is from Sweden. Ekcher, I don't know. So that's the theory. Let me describe it very quickly. Hector Hollin, Hollin, sorry. The theory says that, okay, when there's an opening to international trade, each country is going to be specialized in producing the goods that would intensively use the factors or commodities they have. For instance, let's say that in your country you have a lot of coal, then you're going to produce goods for which you will need coal to produce these goods, right? If you have, for instance, many skilled workers in your country, you're going to produce goods for which you will need to use a lot of skilled labor, right? Which means that there's France, right? France has many skilled workers and France decides to work with Taiwan, where there are uh, fewer skilled people. Therefore, Taiwan is going to specialize in the production of goods for which they need to use unskilled workers, whereas in France, we're going to focus more on goods for which we need more skilled workers. Now, what's going to happen then? Well, this means that in France, the, the, there's going to be an increase in skilled uh, workers' demand. Whereas, if you look at unskilled labor, well, demand is going to decrease in France because these goods will be imported from Taiwan. You see what the impact will be like. This is going to increase the relative demand for uh, skilled labor in France. This was the first explanation, that of international trade. But there are problems with this explanation. Several problems, several problems connected to international trade. The first one is that in 1980, so problem, problem, 1980, I'm trying to explain what happened in the U.S. and U.S. trade with developing countries, with developing countries, well, this is something that represents less than 2% of American GDP. So how come? It's such a small percentage. Well, now the figures changed, but at the time it was less than 2%. This was an argument put forward by Krugman. He said, how come? Something that's so small and it had such a huge impact on inequalities throughout the United States of America. That's a problem. And a problem, a problem, an argument put forward by Krugman, right? That's the first problem. 
There are more problems. Another problem is that and I'm going to write on this side now, or perhaps here, perhaps here, another objection to the theory, which is, oh, sorry, I did something silly. Oh, I dropped that. Oh, my. Oh, sorry. How awful. It dropped. I dropped it. Oh, all the silly things. I do all these silly things today. It's a miracle I'm still with you today. A miracle, I'm telling you. So, another argument, which is... Okay, let's say it's due to the theory of trade. Then, in this case, labour should have been reallocated. And I mean unskilled labour. It would have left the sectors that are in a competitive environment to move towards sectors that are not in a competitive environment. And therefore, sectors or industries exposed to competition like Taiwan would produce less. For instance, clothes, they're coming from Taiwan. We do not make them ourselves. But then, since this is less expensive, we're going to reallocate it to other industries that use a lot of uh, labor, that are less exposed to competition from foreign countries. And therefore, we would have seen this re allocation, reallocation between the different industries, some industries subject to competition towards other industries that are not uh, subject to competition. But what we've seen is that all industries have increased their relative demand for qualified uh, labor, skilled labor. So it happened within the industries, not between the industries. So this doesn't go with the international trade theory, the international trade theory cannot explain this. This is the second argument, that is reallocation of unskilled, I'll write this, reallocation of unskilled labor in developed countries or in the, in the United States, let's say, in the United States. Was something that was intrasectorial, not inter, that is between the industries, but intrasectorial, more than within the industries themselves. That's interesting. And it's also very much connected to innovation, which means that the industries that have more RD and that use computers more. It's mainly in these sectors, in these industries. So we thought it's connected to technical changes, technical developments. We thought, OK, connected to technical developments. It's not just international trade. So no, it's not necessarily something that works with this assumption of international trade. And also, we would have had fewer inequalities in terms of income in developing countries. Developing countries produce more. They use unskilled labor. Therefore, labor for unskilled labor in developing countries would have gone up. And therefore, uh, income inequalities would have decreased in developing countries, which is not the case. Which means that the theory of trade didn't explain this. It's interesting, you know, for the sake of it. And therefore, international trade, yes, it plays a role, but it's not the main explanation. The theory of international trade is not, not enough to explain wage inequalities in the 80s. So we looked for other reasons. The other reason was the fact that there's some de-unionization. That's another theory. 
So I'll erase this. And deunionization. This means now let's try and understand what's happened in the 80s. Deunionization. Right. Okay, Regan, Thatcher. What's happened with them? Well, what's happened is the influence of the trade unions. When Reagan and Thatcher were there, well, the influence of the trade unions decreased enormously, which means that if we look at unionization rates in the US, in the US, okay, US, that's for Etats-Unis, and UK is for Royaume-Uni, or United Kingdom. Okay, anyway, US and the UK. Unionization levels went down from 25% down to 16%. What a drop! 25 down to 16 between 1979 and 1985. So quick between 1979 and 85. What a massive decrease! 10 points! That's a huge drop. And also, also there's another similar trend in the UK. What also happened is that in parallel, the minimum wages dropped as well in the US. In real value, 30%, 30% in the 80s. So minimum wage, minimum wage. In the US, it's never increased. In the US, decreased by 30%. That's the value that decreased. Purchasing power, I mean. And inflation was still going up, but wages never increased, nominally, in the 80s. So, this is such a drop. Which means, okay, you're looking for explanations. This is the explanation with Reagan. You know, this strike, the strike of, was it air controllers, I think? And for Mrs. Thatcher's, it was the miners, the miners who had decided to go on strike. And what they did is that they broke the trade unions. And in the UK, the minimum wages went down during the 80s. So those are the explanations. The explanations are very simple. It's due to Reagan and Thatcher. They harmed the trade unions. But it's more complex than this. The trade unions have two impacts on wages. There's the minimum wage, of course, but also, you know, the trade unions, they do two things. First, a number of reports, for instance, a, free, a friend from Harvard uh, wrote something called, what do unions do? That's Freeman. And um, he said that usually they compress wedge wedges because these are salary grids that they work on. So between those who belong to the trade unions, but then there are more uh, wedge inequalities between those who are within the union and those who do not belong to trade unions. So are we sure of what we're saying? Maybe there are more increases between those who belong to a trade union. So that's a bit of a complex thing to measure. But then the important idea is that, okay, there's this dimension. Maybe trade unions 
they played a role, that's true, but is it the main explanation for this phenomenon we're trying to understand? And then we should ask ourselves two questions. First, the time dimension. In the UK, wage inequality started before the arrival of the Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher, in the 80s, but salary inequalities in the UK started increasing before uh, she uh, started doing these things with the uh, strikes, etc. So how come it started increasing before her arrival? And then in the US, de-unionization started before uh, Mr. Reagan. So it's not just his fault. So in terms of timing, no, it doesn't work. Probably that's one of the elements that aggravated the trend. But it's not the main explanation. It's like an investigation. We're looking for the elements. Which is the trigger? There's something else, something else, which has an awful name to it, an expression. I don't know how we should say this in French, but anyway, I'll try in French, which is skill-biased technical change. I'll use the English expression. So, skill-biased technical change. The magic explanation is this one. Skill-biased technical change. That is for those who are skilled. This is what happened in the US. There was an acceleration in skill bias technical changes in the 80s for reasons that we're going to try and understand. That is, there was innovation, technical development, but it was good for those who were skilled. Better machines for people who were more qualified or skilled. So we have to understand this acceleration. And the other report I mentioned before, the paper that showed that reallocation was more intrasectoral or intra-industrial. Well, look at this. In this paper, they said that 70% of reallocation is, well, 70%, as I was saying, is, is, is within industry. And therefore connected to R&D and also to the fact that people are using more computers and the NTIC revolution, uh, new technologies in information and communication. So this is the most plausible explanation, is to look at this. What's happened? Well, technical change accelerated towards skilled people. How come? Well, many papers have shown this acceleration. Gordon, for instance, the same man who's talking about secular stagnation nowadays, but many more talked about this acceleration, more technical change and development, skilled bias technical change. And there's one explanation which is plausible, which is this TIC revolution, technologies of information and communication. Right, TIC revolution, what is it all about? Now, that's the timeline, right? And then the fraction of industries, fraction of industries or sectors that adopt these new technologies, the TICs or NTICs. Now, what happened is that when there's a technological revolution to start with, well, that's 1980. At the beginning, there's not much. We don't have many adopters. For instance, steam machines. Steam machines, well, they were not used to start with. And then several people tried it. And then all of a sudden, it's like a disease. Everybody catches it. And then there's acceleration in terms of the spreading of the disease. It's the same for all major technological developments. There's a historian, 
uh, called Paul David at Stanford, who's really talked about this in a marvelous way. He's got such a passion for this. So Paul David showed that, in fact, these are generic technologies that you can use in all industries, like the steam machine. It was a generic technology, or electricity as well, or computers as well. And the idea is to say, well, it's like a disease that spreads, that spreads. At the beginning, there are not many uh, adopters, and then it goes very quickly. And it's the same here with computers. In the 80s, people started using computers. They wanted to use computers. And it really happened between the year 1980 and the year 2000. And when you install computers, you need skilled people. And it's true that there's an increase in the supply, but there's even more in terms of demand during this acceleration phase. That's why salaries increase. That's the most plausible explanation, is to say, OK, OK, with this IT revolution, we've had more skilled workers. Yet there's another explanation put forward by Asimoglu, and he said, well, his explanation comes as an addition. He said, well, you can tell me all this is very nice, but then why, why, why did salaries decrease first before wages went up again? Now look at this, this or that, that. Why do we have such a drop here? And what he said, his explanation is as follows. He said, what happened in 1970? Well, you know what happened then. Who was on the labour market? Well, the baby boomers, those who were born after the war. After 1945, people started having more and more children. And now they started entering the labour market in the 70s. And they were more skilled than their parents. Because, you know, wars have this socialising effect. People think, oh, we need more public services. And more people go to school. And also in the US, you know, with the veterans, it was so difficult for them. Therefore, we're going to give their children free schooling. So many of these children in the US could go to university without paying anything. So this generation, the baby boomers, are more educated than their parents. And many of them entered the labor market in the 70s. And this is what happened. The relative uh, supply for skilled labor increased. So the relative scarcity decreased, and therefore the relative wages for skilled people dropped, and then it increased again. Maybe because here's there was the uh, TIC revolution, but with all of these skilled people, we thought, okay, the time has come. We have to do this now. Now we have a lot of skilled people. They're not very expensive, so let's do it now. Let's do it now. Let's start our revolution now. I think two, both explanations work together. So there's both the TIC revolution and also the fact that many baby boomers entered uh, the uh, labor market. This is where we are. This is where we are. These are the explanations. This is how we can explain inequalities in general. Well, it doesn't mean that de-unionization didn't play a role. Maybe it did. But as we have more inequalities, as you know, you know, when you're in a trade union, you have the impression that your fate is connected to somebody else's. If you have a good offer and my offer is not the same, then maybe I can no longer stay in my trade union. You see what I mean? And there's a link 
between trade unions and this trend. So it was an aggravating factor, but more or less. What we're saying is that, of course, international trade had a role to play, but it's not the main uh, element. And also deunionization was one of the elements, but not the principal one. What was very important is this uh, quick development for skilled people, so skilled bias technical change. That was due to the revolution of NTICs and also the fact that on the labor market we had a great number of people who were more skilled than their parents. That's more or less our explanation. And there's a, a final one, a final one that comes on top of it all, which is, as I was saying before, I was saying the skilled labor supply increased now, and then it decelerated. It didn't increase that quickly, which is what we have here. I'll try and talk about this in a minute. And here, this as well, that also, this, okay, okay, there we are. Skilled bias technical change. And this is information technology. We've gone through that already. That is more and more people uh, adopted TICs, etc. Communication and information technologies. And the explanation is this. Look at this, these technological waves, these technological waves. It's nice. Look at these waves. That's my friend Gilbert Set for the Banque de France uh, with his team. He's Mr. Productivity. He knows this by heart. This is electricity wave and also chemistry or chemicals in the US. And that's the Internet wave. And we, Europe, this is where we are. It started after the war here, always with this lag. And then the TIC wave in France. No, we've not yet reached the peak because we have rigid systems. But I'll talk about this next time, next time, next time. OK, that's an idea for you, the technological waves. We'll see. We'll see. We'll talk about them later on. Um, what happened then with higher education is that the university fees increased a lot faster than before in the United States. And this has slowed down the growth in the relative supply for skilled people. This is what happened. It's still increased, but not as fast as before, because university fees are so high in the United States, they increase so quickly. So this tends to put off people. That's the problem in America. That is, there's more debt on the households. This is something that uh, led to the subprime crisis. And it discourages people. People don't go to university because it's too expensive. Costs are going up all the time. And this is an aggravating factor. It's not the main element to explain this increase in wage inequalities. And also, there was another thing that was very interesting. Oh, 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 oh my, my, I think it's already 3 p.m. Do you want to breathe a little and take a little rest? Okay. So, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I didn't, oh, sorry. I didn't know. Okay, we'll meet again in five minutes. We have lots of things to talk about.